Looking for a job isn't easy. It used to be that you could apply at a big name tech company and build a great career for yourself. But times have changed. Many of these companies have gone full woke. And if you aren't the right gender, ethnicity, you don't use pronouns, or if you're not an activist for the preferred cause, then good luck. Why would you risk your career on that? At Red Balloon, we're connecting good employees with top quality companies that value you for your skills and your work ethic, not your social activism score. Employers who post jobs on Red Balloon are focused on creating an enjoyable and productive work culture, free from divisive woke mandates. So if you want to find a serious career path without the nonsense, come to Red Balloon and post your resume today. Because you shouldn't have to choose between your job and your values. That's redballoon.work, where you can find your future. That's why we're having this conversation, Mike, is we need to get to the underlying cause before we suggest the treatment. Hey everybody, Michael Thiessen here, and you are listening to Open Mic with Michael Thiessen. And today I am speaking with Amanda Chan, and we're going to have a conversation around biblical counseling. Yet another professional discipline that it seems Christians would go to Christian counselors to get Christian counseling and often find themselves hearing the same thing as their secular counterparts. And so Amanda and I want to have a conversation about that today. Amanda, thank you so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. Thank Why don't you, you share with me. us a little bit about your uh, your background? And uh, it'll, it'll provide an opportunity for everybody to understand why we're having this particular discussion. All right. Uh, well, from the Christian side of things, then I've been a Christian my whole life, um, grown up in the church. And from professional side of things, then I went to school and I got a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology. And I went on to get a Bachelor of Science in Occupational Therapy. When I graduated school, I got a job at a tertiary rehabilitation facility, um, which service clients that had moderate to severe head injury, um, acquired injury from trauma um, due to car accidents, anoxic brain injuries, or um, strokes were a, a predominant thing that I saw. Okay, so um, why don't we get why don't we get into that therapy side of things when we're talking about um, well, it's, it's a word that I've come across by an author named Jay Adams um, when he's written a book called The Christian Counselor's Manual, and I've really appreciated his work because he says as a pastor or a Christian counselor or any individual seeking to help someone else, when they come to you, you're when you're looking for behavioral problems, one of the first things you need to do is you need to determine whether or not this is an organic problem or this is um, a behavioral problem or um, 
an individual, uh, uh, I want to, I want to say someone who is choosing to behave this way rather than organically being forced to, to behave this way. So can you, why, why don't you explain from your experience, what you would understand to be the difference between an organic situation and, uh, and, and then maybe a behavioral situation. That's a really good question. It's very complex. Um, every brain injury is so different. Um, there are different uh, ways that the brain is damaged depending on the type of injury. So if you've got someone who had an MCA stroke, it's an MCA artery stroke, they're going to present with a specific pattern of deficits uh, depending on the severity again, but there are patterns in that. Um, but then there's also the personality that's layered on top of that. And there's also some uh, other factors that could be going on in the environment and how they're responding to those factors. And really, you need to tease those things out. What I found working as an occupational therapist is my general rule was that I would need to see a certain performance three times before I could make a definitive statement that this is going to be like how the person is going to respond in this particular situation. If I didn't see it three times, then I, I really had a hard time saying, yeah, that's, that's definitely how they, they're going to respond on a regular basis going forward. Um, now, teasing that out from what's the cause? What's the root cause? Is it injury or is it personality or is there something else going on? That's really, it, it's just really, really tricky. So um, medically, then what you can do is you can try and treat some of the causes so I would go back to the doctor and, and say, this is what I'm seeing. And then maybe they would add some sort of medication onto the person's um, medication list, maybe to increase arousal. And then we would see maybe if they'd be more engaged, or maybe we would add some pain medication onto um, the right before their treatment so that pain wouldn't be a factor in the treatment either. Um, so I know, I know, Amanda, this is very basic, but I'm trying to bring our, 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 our listeners and our, our general culture is so psychologized. Yeah. Um, medically, if we're seeing behavioral change, I would assume that we can observe it medically. And so on one hand, you're talking about maybe the treatment side of things um, altering if we, if we think it is the, the the problem is this then here are kind of the ways we're treating it medically um, you mentioned stroke like mm -hmm. I I know many people who have experienced family members who have had strokes and it's it is obvious to the layperson that they had a traumatic event happen in their body and one moment they were like this and the next moment they were not like this. So can you walk through some of the 
some of the um, medical traumas that can then be be obviously observed um, that that would lead you down the road to treating someone medically. So can you give us a few of those options, not 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 options like a few of those different cases. So car accident trauma to the brain, a stroke. Um, what are some other ones? If there are many, um, if there aren't many, that's fine. But just what are some of the ones where you would go, oh, this is this is medically obviously the, the way that it is. And the, the reason for that is because we've seen this. Okay. Um, yeah, it it's a it's a tough question to answer again, because it depends on the severity and the the one thing about mild brain injury is that often people look like they're regular people. I want to say average. Average is a really bad word. Normal is a really bad word. But you don't healthy. treat them any differently. Healthy. healthy. They, 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 yes. they appear health, like perfectly healthy, medically healthy. Yes. However, they have certain difficulties that are really hard to pinpoint for people. So does that mean maybe their processing speed is a little slower? Does that mean that they aren't able to multitask as well? Uh, often people after brain injury, they, they think that they can return to work quite quickly, or maybe their employers are eager to get them back to work. And it's hard. It's really hard for them because the demands are there that they were used to before. But there's all these factors like fatigue and processing speed and uh, memory can be impacted sometimes. They can have increased stress and anxiety just from the transition back to work. So there's those factors that are playing into their performance. Does that answer your question? Not really. <laughs> well, you're, we're, we're, um, it does, but we're maybe, maybe you made a distinction there that's important between major and mild. So when I'm thinking of, of major head injury or, or organic, it, it, an individual has behavioral change that needs to be treated medically not necessarily just through counseling. I'm thinking in my head, you know, swelling on the brain, concussion, um, stroke, all of these things that, and maybe I am thinking of major events that can be scientifically observed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, what, and a lot, of, a lot of those things, yeah, they're, they're major events. So you're talking about more of the acute case, acute phase of injury. And during the acute phase, then rest is like the biggest thing for people just to get kind of stabilized so that they can respond better to a lot of the medications and also to the therapy that is deemed necessary. So we're getting somewhere. I, I don't know the difference between the acute phase and then the, the follow-up phases, or there's a, it's, it, it would seem that if it's a mild event, then it's not so easily observed through, uh, 
MRIs and, and anything like that. So maybe when we're beyond the acute phase or we're dealing with a mild case, you're now talking about needing to take the time when it's not so obvious to figure out that we are dealing with an organic problem. And when I say organic, again, something is the body's damaged. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what else can I say to that effect? Even in mild cases, if you do an MRI or a CT scan, sometimes you don't see damage. Like the, the infarcts in the brain or the damage to the brain is so diverse, like distributed over a larger area that it might not come up, but you might see behavioral change nonetheless. It doesn't negate that there has been damage. Um, for some of our younger folks, they've got more plasticity in their brains. So that means that they're able to adapt and healthy neurons are able to be reinforced and make new connections, new patterns. Um, whereas the, they kind of work around the damaged area of the brain. Whereas if you've got somebody who is a little bit older, like somebody who's had a stroke, um, they're in their mid sixties. The rule when I, when I was, uh, working in brain injury was we weren't allowed to admit people who are 65 because of the reduced plasticity of the brain, um, the, the outcomes just weren't as good for somebody who is older compared to somebody who is younger. Um, they also have, if there's more, there's comorbidities like say diabetes or they've got um, atherosclerosis or various like things that are going to make uh it difficult to recover on without brain injury, then it, it might impact their ability to do well in rehab as well. Hey friends, I'm happy to talk to you again about Rocklink Investment Partners. With inflation at 40 year highs and economic stagflation on the horizon, growing and preserving your hard earned capital is of utmost importance. I know it's on my mind. And that's why Rocklink Investment Partners are so essential because they understand the investment challenges of today. Rocklink is an independent investment management firm focused solely on creating portfolios of high quality businesses anchored to the time tested principles of value investing. And they do not shy away from essential businesses that do not meet the World Economics Forum's definition of ESG. So email rocklink at info at rocklink.com, that's rocklink with a C, or visit them at www.rocklink.com. And again, that's link with a C. So you would be seeing individuals who would, who would come that, that need an evaluation before starting therapy. So you're, you're walking through a lot of these scenarios where you're, where you're trying, experimenting, listening, doing 
doing actions, observing in order to just get the assessment right when we're talking about brain injuries. Mm-hmm. And so then, you know, kind of based on our discussion so far, if I were to say to you, Amanda, it's clear that some people struggle with behavioral issues because they struggle with self-control and other people's brains are really going through something. Again, I, I'm trying to spoon feed the the conversation right here because this is the first time I've addressed presuppositional biblical counseling for my listeners. Um, the a long part of the process, an important part of the process, is determining: Am I dealing with someone who has had organic injury? So, so do you ever get to the point where you say, "No, we're not dealing with someone with." with brain trauma here or are you, are you getting them after an acute situation most often or um are you getting them after a referral is it is is your the practice that you were involved with is it pretty a sure thing that you you've already you're already dealing with an organic problem here or do you get like a 50-50 you know, hey, uh, no, we, we're starting the therapy and that person um, needs to just go receive solid counseling, not therapy. Okay. So uh, when I was working at the hospital, 100% all, all brain injury. <laughs> they were inpatients. Um, they were voluntarily, they, they came to our program because they had had some form of brain injury and it like it could have been traumatic. It could have, but they were in hospital. They weren't able to go home. Like the, it was like so obvious that they were there for that form of treatment and they needed multidisciplinary care. When I deal with other people in the community who have <laughs> a brain injury as well, uh, actually because I, of where I live, I do see some of the patients that I had up at the hospital even 10 years ago. I see them walking around. Um, so I, I have longer-term knowledge of kind of some of their outcomes. But I have friends also who've had serious head injuries as well. And you wouldn't really know unless you talk to them that they've had a serious head injury. Um, but the question that you're asking in terms of treating somebody just with a brain injury um, and, and looking at it from an organic perspective, then maybe if they don't need all the multidisciplinary intervention, then you would, you may be able, they may be at such a high functioning level that you would be able to treat them with just counseling. There were patients that were in our program that the psychologists were doing counseling with. They were talking about their adjustment to being injured. And there were some folks that were not able to walk anymore. They had to use a wheelchair full time. So, um, and I know I, I've got a story for you. Uh, one of my patients, he was a young guy and he, he did have like, a really hard time accepting that he was going to be in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. 
Um, so I knew that he was really grieving the loss of being able to walk. But also I knew interacting with him that he wasn't able to control his emotions and that I attributed to his brain injury. So often when he would get really upset, his tone would kick in. So when you've got a severe trauma, often you get hemiparesis, uh, like flaccid, one side of your body is flaccid, or you've got increased tone on that one side. So often we would see um, the hand and the leg on the one side of the body, if they, they got really upset, their tone would increase. And so their hand would often like curl up in a fist and their tone in their leg, it would like their leg would just shoot right out. And they would have to let that run its course until it kind of came down until the adrenaline kind of came down. And then it was like, okay, and now we'll have a little bit more of a conversation. But I knew that in conversations with some of these folks, I wasn't able to talk about tomorrow or next week. I just had to be in the moment with them. So be in the task that we were doing and really focus because they're thinking, a lot of them, the, their thinking was very concrete, not abstract. Um, going back to this fellow that was in the wheelchair that had some of the emotional regulation issues, um, he was really struggling with this, the fact that he was gonna be in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. And so I brought him into my office and I had a video of a, a young kid and he was in a wheelchair and it looked like he had been born with his deficits. Um, so kids who are born with deficits requiring a wheelchair to get around, then often like there's just so much plasticity and there's an acceptance that that is just who they are and they can overcome a lot of obstacles. Um, so this kid had gone to the skate park and was doing flips in his wheelchair and to show this young man who had just been injured that life was not over, that there was life, there, there was possibility, like it was just huge for him. And so it, that, it's really hard. You just have to be so gentle with folks when they're coming up against such massive change in their lives, they're grieving, um, but also their brains now are thinking of things so concretely. Um, and it, it, is, it is hard to tease that out. What is what? And, and uh, but if, if they're not able to respond, maybe just try to reframe and package it a different way um, but they're going to need some help. It, it's not like the tradi traditional therapy where you can say, okay, let's talk about things in abstract terms. Let's talk about these models. And now you're going to go home and you're going to apply this. It just doesn't work very well. You really need to be like in the situation, make it as rich as possible for people and make it very relevant to what they're 
um, struggling with to help them overcome those barriers because they are dealing with so much. How, so you gave one example there about how you could tell when um, he was about to, to go through a bodily reaction, you know, uh, you, you mentioned, you know, that it, the leg shot out and the hand moves. And so we know that we're dealing with a bodily reality. You also then just said, we know that they think more concretely. How, how do you observe that someone, are, are you questioning family members? Are you, when, when you say we know they think more concretely, how do you observe that? in 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 this field well i've got another example of a question that i asked all of the people who are higher functioning that were considered for going home to live independently so for these folks they were often walking they were able to talk to me they um, were completing meal prep activities they were doing all of their basic um, care. So they were doing their dressing and bathing and everything independently. I would ask them, okay, in the last five years, have you ever been hospitalized or had any major health issue? I asked every patient that I saw in seven years <laughs> this question. No one mentioned their brain injury. Like that to me blew me away. They were sitting in a hospital and they didn't realize they were in the hospital for their head injury. It, and they were ready to be discharged home. So like you kind of give your head a shake because it's like, wow, uh, it, this is every single one that's not realizing that they've had this major head trauma. And this is after I've developed a relationship with them over the last nine months to a year, and they're not acknowledging that. So you, you would think that that's not, the lack of insight there is not because they're intending to deceive me. It's just that they just don't know. They're just not putting two and two together are able to go beyond um yeah what's happening and we're sitting in this room and we're talking about how you would do certain things when you get home or safety concerns and so i found that doing tests like the i know that a lot of psychologists and counselors will do these standardized tests it was so important for me as an occupational therapist just to see the person doing the activity because you would get an idea by doing a test, but you really need to see them do it to see what's going on. Okay, so everybody, we've we've begun this program um, talking about counseling and we haven't gotten to the subject matter of counseling too much. Amanda has touched on that um, as a part of a multidiscipline 
um, way to give therapy to individuals who obviously have brain injury. Now we're going to kind of get to the to the subject matter that is really at hand. And the reason why we started with 25 minutes of talking about organic brain injury, because this is an area where the medical world and observational science is very important. This is where, um, where, you know, I'm about to reject psychology. So I'm just accepting that everybody's going to say Mike is a science denier. And that's not where we want to start. We want to start with what science can and cannot do. And so science can observe people's behavior. They can observe their bodies and can observe when the body itself is impeding someone's maybe we want to say creational, normal, healthy, and we will add to those words moral and virtuous behavior. And Amanda, we're going to kind of utilize this young man in the wheelchair as an example as to you could clearly see from everything around the situation, even when he would be going through what might others might observe as a tantrum, you could observe that something was going on with the body here because of what you said, he had increased tone. Um, everybody, now I, I want to move over into the category of I'm up. I'm a pastor. Um, maybe Amanda's a mother. Uh, many of you listening might be teachers, um, or you might be um, a medical doctor or a lawyer. And you have someone come into your office seeking wisdom, seeking counsel. Maybe it's parents with child or or whatever. And they're asking you to try to help resolve conflict. So I can think of a hundred examples. So, you know, I've got a, I've got a teenager that's off the rails. Okay, um, my husband is having an affair, or my wife is having an affair, or we have a ton of marital tension. Um, my, 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 I. We as parents have a hard time with discipline and we disagree about discipline. There's all of these these other questions going on now when we get into the world of counseling that is not organic. It's not dealing with the stuff that Amanda has been dealing with. And so I'm just taking a, a, a little bit of time here in this midsection to kind of frame the next part of our discussion because, again, as Christians, how do we counsel people? Do we counsel them by the methods of the world and by the theories of modern day psychology? Do we counsel them with a mixture of that? You might you might call that an eclectic um, an, an eclectic practice. Or um, are we able to sufficiently counsel people who do not have organic problems from what we have been given in scripture and what God says about humanity. So that's the conversation. Before I throw things back to Amanda, I want to remind all of you that this show is produced by Liberty Coalition Canada in partnership with ChristianWeek.org. 
Liberty Coalition Canada exists to establish Christ's justice and righteousness and to defend those who stand. And Christian Week exists to provide a practical, balanced, hope-filled perspective on national and global issues. So you can go to libertycoalitioncanada.com to look up all of our initiatives, and you can go to christianweek.org to look at um, uh, important news stories. If you want to help support our podcasting work, head over to libertycoalitioncanada.com backslash donate and click the analysis box. Donations submitted there go directly to Christian Week as they help us produce these things. And if you want to support our legal work, uh, which is very important, head over to libertycoalitioncanada.com backslash donate and click other designations. So, Amanda, back to you on this on this you know, I, I, I feel like I'm I'm opening a pretty big can right now. And you and I have never talked at length about this. So I don't even know if you're gonna agree with how far I wanna go. But let me just set the premise up for you. Um there's a really great work, um, a number of works by a man named Jay Adams, who's a biblical counselor, who begins his call to biblical counseling by stating how broken up and secularized psychology is and how approaching the counseling practice without uh, basing your presuppositions, without um, uh, basing your techniques on scripture leads you just down a very random and destructive path. So give us your reaction to that initial thought. Well, I because I went through a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology and I took a, quite a few courses on uh, different psychological theories. So I, I, I know of Jung and Adler and Freud I know of Skinner, I I know of all of their theories, they all do have presuppositions. They all have assumptions built into their frameworks for understanding issues. And some of them are very distorted in terms of, like Freud, for example, he's a good one to pick on because <laughs> his, his whole theory is based on sexual theory. And um, But then there's other psychologists that looked at what was happening with the individual milestones and they developed theories based on them. But a lot of the theories were based on a very small subset of individuals, they and the psychologists' um, observations of how individuals were processing things. So they they divorced God from the whole assessment process. Um, whereas if you look at it through a biblical lens. And I'm just a layperson. I I don't have theological training from a, a seminary other than one year of Bible college. But when I go, when I I was working at with these um, patients who have brain injury, 
my approach to them were that they were created in the image of God and they deserved dignity. Um, it's with fear and trembling that you go and you make suggestions as to how they could do things differently and realizing that they're at such a vulnerable point um, in their lives. And I think it it's more so from the practitioner's um, perspective that you, you've got to be grounded in treating people as worthwhile, as worthy of investing in, as being a part of our community. We need to help people who are suffering um, because they're worth it. We don't just, just discard people. Rather, I, I don't know um, how you can look at it in terms of what's going on inside their brains from a biblical perspective. Like, I, I'm kind of at a loss for speaking to that, but it's more your response and your gentleness with them and realizing that you need the Lord to heal these people um, because they are so physically broken. Um, me, when, um, yeah, go ahead. On that point that, you know, that's, um, that's what we would call a ministerial perspective. You are, you are engaging in this counseling to minister, to serve, to give care to an individual. And, you know, that, that ministerial perspective is so assumed by Christians um, uh, it is not necessarily assumed by those outside of the, of the Christian world. Um, when you start getting into kind of the, the professional and the, um, the expert perspective, you know, you can, you can easily move into an, you know, um, a, what works best, what works fastest what what gives perceived responses so quickly rather when when you move out of that ministerial perspective so um how does how how does this individual get out of my office with the with with perceived change but particularly not um a a, a deeper or um more meaningful existence or the other side, how do I keep this person in a codependent relationship um, in order for the professional side of things to grow? And I think this ministerial side that you're touching on right now is so important to, to um, inform and to direct this type of counseling ministry, this type of this, this type of this, this profession. Um, what would be the difference in your mind, Amanda, if we were to boil down, like, I'm not sure if it's Skinner or, uh, Rogerian psychology, um, kind of down to the Pavlov's dog, um, motive, motivators and deterrence type of, 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 uh, counseling, how would you feel if, how would you explain the negative or the positive 
processes where somebody is imploring a method that is just seeking to change your behavior, but not caring for your overall perspective or your overall worldview. Um, we, we can fall into this category in, in marriage. Uh, it's called manipulation rather than ministry where we just want a behavioral change in our spouse, but we're, we're not thinking about what's, what's going on completely. Um, in the counseling world, wh where would you see that being problematic? And, and if, if I'm being too loaded with it, I'm giving you permission to push back and say, well, here are some benefits as well. But uh, what would you think about that type of approach? So when I was being trained, as an occupational therapist, then we were talking, we were taught that in goal setting, generally you involve the client in the goal setting, right? Client-centered care. That was a big, huge push. However, there was one class I remember, they said, except for those who have brain injury, which gives me pause, right? So they would often advocate for a cognitive behavioral method of therapy or goal setting for therapy with all other populations, except for those who had brain injury in which they encouraged an adoption of a Skinner behavioral modification approach. So you take the individual out. Now, I worked with the clients who had moderate to severe brain injury. I would say that they are not capable of making long-term abstract goals. Like I need to be able to dress myself. I need to be continent. I need to um, be able to do my meal prep. I like all of these things in order to go home. I need to demonstrate safety so that I can be left alone at home. Like those kind of goals kind of eluded them. However, they were really good at making goals that were meaningful to them. So what I was taught in university was to divorce their, like even their input from the goal setting process. But what I found clinically was, yeah, that's relevant to some goals, but they, they still have things that are very meaningful to them that we can build into therapy to work towards those bigger goals. So I kind of had to be that part of their abstract thinking process that would get them to their end goal. But we, we also had to continue to work within what they wanted because they're not, they're not just um, these, these vessels that are devoid of value that can just be operated on. Like they just, you have to treat people as people that are unique with the um, desires and motivations and you have to be able to engage them. And so it, that's where I really, I really struggled with adopting what I had been taught from a, a psychology level. 
this is a fascinating part of the conversation. And so I'm just going to be the, I'm just going to be the idiot in the room. What if my goals? So you, you, like, there's a ton of embedded assumptions in, in working with people to set goals. Mm -hmm. So like, what if someone had like a really bad leg injury and the goal that they wanted to set was to get back to a point where they could be utterly sexually promiscuous. Right. Like, is that something a doctor would go? Yeah, that would, that would be a great goal. Let's, let's, let's make sure like, let's, so we're and now again, I'm, 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 I'm using a, I'm using a, a, a pretty abstract or ridiculous point but I don't think I'm using a point that wouldn't be coming up in someone's mind if that was their previous behavior. So when we're talking about goal setting, there's a there's a ton of assumptions right embedded in that where where you have to have healthy goal setting in order uh-huh. to really actually have goal setting. You know, um, I know this sounds crazy, but yeah, I want to you know I want to get my my arm back into full functioning order so I can continue to you know beat my younger brother. That's like I, I now maybe people aren't coming out and saying that, but what I'm trying to get at is even when you were talking about goal setting, there's a level, there's a ton of assumptions that people have to borrow from somewhere to say these goals are healthy. Mm-hmm. So where would the medical community be getting their assumptions of healthy goal setting? And what would be some examples of healthy goal setting? You you've mentioned that with with people who need to go home, that the, the, those all seem to be very healthy, um, healthy goals. They don't seem to be at, attached to anything further or to um, or to down the road. You know, wh- what are the embedded assumptions in goal setting? Well, it really comes down to the individual therapist. It, it does, um, in, in terms of their assumptions and. When I was working at the hospital, then they really encouraged you to be uh, neutral, like quote unquote neutral. I don't know if you can see that on my screen, but (laughs) yes. Yeah. So they didn't want you talking about religion. They at all. And they just wanted you focused on getting them into a more independent state. So maximizing their physical abilities in in terms of independence. So our big team goals were functional independence measure. That was our big team metric that we went through. And we had to, as therapists, figure out how we were going to move our patient from dependence to independence. So the sub goals could be anything that the therapist thought were going to be helpful to move that person up into a more independent framework um, or performance or performance. Um, everybody, you can hear within what Amanda is describing something that we would assume assume to be healthy and fine. Um, people who are going from low function to higher function, people who are dependent to independence, 
But the point that I'm trying to make here is, again, the science itself does not have a moral direction. The science itself only leads you to motor movement. It leads you to, um, like Amanda said, maybe a safer environment in certain categories. But if someone wants to then take their higher functioning and their um, independence and point that in a direction that is full of immorality, then they're going to deal with a whole new area of behavioral issues and, 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 and pain that they're going to bring upon themselves. And so as we're talking about this, this is, this is again where the secular psychologists and the medical community cannot answer the fundamental questions of life. What is my purpose of being? Um, to whom do I have to give an account? Where will I go when I die? You know, Amanda, you brought up that quite the that story of that young man in the wheelchair, and I can understand the example of looking at a younger kid who is, you know, active physically, but you know, the the bigger question of life is, you know, why why am I experiencing what I am experiencing? How does that fit within the grander narrative of the world? And the, the, the deeper questions cannot be answered with just, you're going to be more mobile. And folks, this is why when we're having these conversations and I want to dance here, I want to, I want to dance appropriately in between what medical medicine and medical therapy can do and what it cannot do. And what it cannot do is point people in the right direction to be, as we've talked about many times, civil, moral, uh, purpose-filled um, creatures. It, it just can't do that. And Amanda, some of the things that you're, you're saying there around this neutrality, um, number one, if you're a Freudian psychologist, you're not neutral. You're, you're pointing people towards sexual bliss equals happiness. Therefore, that is meaning. You, you, are, you, are, you are recognizing society as someone who is going to be at odds with you finding your, your personal meaning. Um, a, a number of the other psychologists go down similar paths where they see society as this corrupting of the authentic individual. And the only way to plow through all of this is to have greater answers than what the medical community can provide. Um, thank you, Amanda, for that section, because I, I, do you think that I am characterizing some of the things you were describing appropriately. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. There, there's definite limits as to what the medical community is able to offer. And, and they're very targeted in terms of just trying to get people as functional as possible to get them out of the hospital to do what they want to do, not necessarily what, might be best for 
Mm-hmm. So I, I want to just I want to point out a reason why we're talking about this further because there's two things, uh, and Amanda, I want you you to comment on this. Um, number one, there's authority in counseling, so these people are listening to your instruction. It it, it doesn't come as a um like I'm I'm sure there is a um there's their decision to follow your instructions or not, but in reality, counseling by its nature includes a level of authority. Um, you've observed, um, you've learned how to help people, and they are accepting your voice of authority in this. The second thing is, is counseling is directive. So it, it, it tells people what to do. And again, when we're dealing with an organic situation, people like Amanda could come in and really help in that situation. Would you agree with those two natures of, of you know, the, those the, those two realities of counseling? Yeah, I, I would. I, I especially if you have a long term relationship with somebody, then they do give you that authority as the therapist. And if you have helped them navigate some of the more abstract elements of goal setting, then they trust you to help guide them further and into the future. There, there are situations that I have found myself in when I've been with individuals and they're about to do something and you often will say, stop, <laughs> or have you thought about it this way? And try to get them to rethink what they're about to do so that they can make a a wiser choice or if they've made a really bad choice it's like okay well that that was a a a painful experience for you or a mistake now let's let's try again let's let's see what we're going to do about this and help you to move on from whatever whatever happened so everyone this is where um we're get we're we're getting to the end here, Amanda. And if it's okay with you, this is where I I'm gonna dig into a little bit of what a Christian needs to know about counseling, and then I want to let you comment on it, maybe with your personal experience. So again, what what we have as a Christian, in the same way as a father or a mother or a husband or a wife or a child or an aunt or uncle or in law, we have a number of things that we're clearly taught about that then allow us then to direct people. And Amanda, you used a word, it's wisdom. So again, folks, this is the difference. Organic problems need um, need observational and um medical treatment, non-organic problems. So now, now maybe dealing, you know, the young man is, is not in a fit in the wheelchair, but now he's just grieving the loss of his legs and is, is needing to be provided with hope and wisdom and, or he's tried that skateboarding 10 times and he's ready to give up. Um, and he needs to understand the importance of the idea of discipline 
and you're getting now into the area where you you, you know you've you've got a child who's having a temper tantrum you've got a there are tools that we have and that every Christian has that we do not need psychology for. The tool, the first tool that we have is the scriptures. And so we have God's revealed word to us about what is wisdom, what is folly. And so accepting, instead of accepting Freud or uh, uh, Skinner or, um, or the, the university prof down the road as authority, the Christian starts with God's word is authority and God's word has things to say about people's behavior. Now, anyone who's read the Bible goes, yes, that's the, that's one of the plainest things ever said. God has a lot to say about people's behavior. So if I've got a, if I've got a young adult who's lying to me regularly it might be okay to find out when did that habit start and um, it might be interesting to know maybe what the, what the mental process, like what the, what the person's thinking about when they're lying. But at the end of the day, it is a simple call, a directive authoritative call to stop that behavior. And so we have the scriptures to help us. The second thing that we have is we have our our own um, life experience, and and every Christian has their own life experience as they've observed the world. And so, Amanda, you bring a great, um, rich understanding of how to work with these people in this medical way, and it's 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 been a a great conversation. And so, you you have the longer you have that experience, the more confidence you have in, in what you're seeing with your own eyes and hearing with your own ears. And then the third thing that every single one of us has is the dynamics of our own sinful heart. And now this leads back to number one, what scripture says about a sinful heart. And so we have a tremendous amount of information and we have a tremendous amount of um, observation and then we have revelation. And I I am calling and encouraging Christians and Christian counselors to move away from depending on other th- authorities and going back to what does God's word say? We are praying about these things in the spirit. We know um we we know enough of observation to know how to categorize this situation. And we can admit in our own heart how we want how we want to throw off the restraints of God and um, move into a manipulative behavior. So, Amanda, I'm going to tell you one story um, from um, from the uh, New Thetic counseling videos, and then I'm going to give you a chance to respond to all of those thoughts. Um, so, schizophrenia is a a, a categorization of an individual where the psychologists can't figure out um, um, what's going on. And so often there, there's no pathway forward on how to, how to deal with this. And so a number of new, of new counselors, they just don't accept the fact that they've, 
they've gone beyond this is not organic. There's there's been enough there's been enough observation and testing that this is not organic. We're dealing with someone who is in a in a in a very radical behavior, like not speaking for a year. And there's a biblical way to deal with it. So the answer is they as 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 counselors, they went in for I, I believe it was three weeks uh, every week. I'm not sure the length of time of visit or, or the frequency, but I know it was over a time of three weeks. They had asked this young lady, uh, her parents, what might be a situation that would cause her to be acting the way she is? If, if it's not organic, what's potentially going on? And the parents revealed that they were missionaries in Africa and that they sent her off to boarding school. And that she had been deeply hurt and upset about that and that they have a terrible relationship with her. So they just went in and they accepted the premise that we're not dealing with an organic situation. We're dealing with someone who is of sound mind, who has ongoing resentment to her parents and needs to learn how to articulate her pain, how to ask, um, ask her parents, uh, to repent, um, ask, uh, offer forgiveness. And we're going to go in with that mindset. So they went in and, and, and after three weeks, this young woman finally, who hadn't spoken, I believe for two years and no, had, there was no, uh, medical breakthroughs or no psych psychological breakthroughs, just repeating the information. You're of sound mind. We know of the deep pain that you've gone through and, and that you have, um, not dealt with it. And it's your choice. You either continue to not speak and act in this behavior and it, the, the, you'll be more medicated, you'll be institutionalized, all of this, or you choose to deal with this situation the way that God prescribes in scripture, where you need to articulate yourself to your parents and you need to come to reconciliation with your parents. And after three weeks, this girl who, hadn't, who had been labeled schizophrenic um, not speaking for two years, opened her mouth and began the counseling process with her parents. So I'm all for just going back to the basics of biblical counseling with people who are not dealing with organic problems because I believe we have everything that we need in scripture. What are your thoughts on that? I, 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 I knew that I needed to do a bit of talking here because I'm the one kind of bringing the question to you. There you have it. What do you think? Well, I have worked in the hospital on the psych ward in acute psychiatry. Um, I used to work as an observation monitor. So I was like a security guard and I would sit outside people's rooms. And I did have people that were catatonic uh, or they were like lighting their garbage cans on fire. Like, there were certain things like that too. Some people you would just walk the halls with and they would be acutely psychotic and their thought process would be so hard to follow because it's just all over the place. So I think maybe for the girl that you're talking about that worked because that was the underlying cause. And maybe that's the, the take home is 
what is the underlying cause of what's going on? That's why we're having this conversation, Mike, is we need to get to the underlying cause before we suggest a treatment. For some other folks, it might not be a spiritual underlying cause. It might mean mean that there's some other biological process going on that makes it really difficult for them to think clearly. And maybe they do need some medications to try and help so that they are able to engage in a more meaningful conversation in order to try and address some of those other spiritual issues that might be going on if they if they are there at all. It could be just a very physical manifestation of what's going on. Um, in terms of schizophrenia, I I am I'm very well aware that they have set criteria and and the Christian community has struggled with what is demon possession and what is what's actually like just a medical problem that's going on and like what what was it like back when Jesus was walking around and all the demons were coming out of people versus today and that's that's a huge conversation to have um because I know that even in my circle of friends I've got people who are not educated um, in the medical field and they view somebody with mental health issues as somebody who is possessed by a demon. And I just, I don't buy it. I don't buy some of their interpretations of what's going on because they've spiritualized a physical reality or they've spiritualized something that is the result of a whole bunch of social demise like their family their family's going through a huge transition and they just can't deal with anything anymore and they get overwhelmed or they act out and you just don't have all that background knowledge they're not possessed by a demon maybe they're not they don't have anything physically wrong with them but they're social support system has just been devastated so we just we really need to figure out what the root cause is that's leading to the behavior that we're seeing and i guess that would be a, a great way to uh answer that question um in terms of the the whole like evidence-based that's another thing uh that was really emphasized when i was going through university is you want to make sure you've got evidence-based treatment. Well, that just means that there was a significant impact of whatever treatment was used on the, the test subjects. It doesn't mean that it works for everyone. So you really need to figure out what the underlying causes for each person. I'm really glad we're ending on that note. Um, because I think I think the conversation has just begun, um, in the in the sense that um, the Christian community is trying to figure out how do we minister to people when they need counseling. I think the one thing that I want to close on and just clarify is we do need to get to the root cause, and Christians, as you just mentioned, Amanda, should not spiritualize those things that are medical. They should not um, 
we see a demon behind every corner when we're dealing with people who have had organic problems or dealing with organic problems. So like you mentioned age, like you, you mentioned the difference between a young person in therapy and an older person in therapy like that. Those are real, those are real factors that, that we are dealing with God's creational reality and the creation affected by the fall. So with that knowledge, we are then treating people with organic problems in a very functional medical way. However, I'm just going to I'm going to just going to reiterate for myself and not let you have the last word Amanda, but uh I, the problem that Christians have faced when we're dealing with non-medical issues is that when we get to the when we get to the understanding of the person's history and the root cause, we are far too often pointing them to the gimmicks and the um tools and to the philosophies of a secular world behavior modification world that just cannot make them whole um, as the word of God does with understanding them as a creator, a created being in relationship and needing to be in a restored relationship with their creator and utilizing the wisdom of Christ in their life. And so um this has been really fun talking to you. I hope everybody who's listening understands why we framed the discussion the way that we did and, and started out with the organic side of things. And now we need to continue learning and continue to be faithful in ministering to people um, as we journey down this road. So thank you, Amanda, for being on with us. We appreciate your time. And uh, thank you for all of your ongoing work. I know your family is an active, busy family, and I'm looking forward to uh, interviewing your husband sometime in the near future. So uh, we are just so thankful for you guys. Everybody, would you please share this video out? Get the conversation starting. Biblical counseling that's faithful to the word and faithful to investigating um, medical, uh, the need for medical intervention. Uh, at different times and at different times and just depending upon the word of God. Thank you for listening to us. Give us a five-star rating, share this video around and Godspeed. <laughs>